episode 139, Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an August 10th, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on our website, kshs.org. The tiny bikini was the bombshell of summer fashion in 1946. 20 years later, a Kansas woman wore a more modest version while relaxing poolside. Join registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine a bikini worn in Topeka, Kansas. How did this skimpy outfit squeeze out the frumpy bathing suits of the 19th century? And why was this iconic swimwear named for a nuclear explosion in the Pacific Ocean? Then we go behind the scenes with a museum intern to check out a very early slideshow before silent films. People watched images projected on the wall with a lamp. Find out about a Topeka man who used these slides to retell stories of the Civil War and chicken cholera. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a small town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Tom and Jerry, a cartoon cat and mouse duo from the 1950s. Did White enjoy eating Pop-Tarts and watching Saturday morning cartoons just like the rest of us? But first, itsy bitsy, teeny weeny. Good morning, Michaela. Hello, Merle. Today we are going to talk about uh, what could be called mankind's greatest adaptation to heat, mm-hmm. the bikini. And it depends on who you are. <laughs> the bikini we're looking at today belonged to a lady named Greta Anderson of Topeka, Kansas, and it was worn in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Unlike modern bikinis, this two-piece plaid swimsuit is, is fairly modest. I mean, it the, trunks, the trunks are pretty, they ride pretty high in the top. Covers covers everything it needs to cover, (laughs) Yes, uh, which is different than how bikinis are today, but Mm -hmm. we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. Um, First, let's iron out some terminology. Okay. What exactly is the difference between a swimsuit and a bathing suit and a bikini and a two-piece? Okay. Well, there are really two things that define what we call the outfit we choose to swim in. One is function, and the other is how much it covers. Okay. Okay. So let's start with the swimsuit. It's a little more athletic, so if you're going to go swim laps, you might choose to wear a swimsuit. Okay. Um, it doesn't really have a lot of frills. Pretty Kind of think of what maybe Olympic swimmers wear, you know, just a simple tank. Um, it's utilitarian, and it's the suit you pick when you're going to the pool for some serious swimming. 
Okay, the bathing suit is a little more frilly. So think of the outfits that women wore to pools and beaches in like the 40s and 50s. Um, maybe you weren't going to swim, you were just going to lay out and get a tan and maybe attract a little attention from the men, you know. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of them looked a little more like short, tight fitting dresses. Um, they generally had boning and support and padding to give you a specific shape. Okay. And they looked a lot like the clothes of the time, they made the body look good. Okay, so a two-piece is just that. It's a suit comprised of two pieces. The bottom Isn't a bikini two pieces? It is two pieces, but the difference is uh, two-piece, the bottoms ride high enough to cover the navel, and the top can be longer, kind of like what we call a tankini today. Uh, it's um, a little bit more of the retro kind of right, like, yeah. look. Okay. Traditionally, there's no more than three inches between exposed between the top and the bottom on a two-piece. Okay. And the bikini reveals the most. The bottoms ride low and sometimes... Um, usually come nowhere near the navel. Um, they, the, ba- the bottoms can look like briefs, but they might just have string ties at the hips. And the top is usually made of just two triangles and a couple of pieces of string. Bikinis are common on the beach today, uh, but at the, tw- at the turn of the 20th century, uh, women were swimming in full-length wool mm-hmm. pants and shirts. Looks like big old clown suits that they were wearing yeah, out there. They look horrible. How did women's swimwear evolve in the 1940s and 50s? And did mainstream fashion influence what we looked like at the swimming pool? Swimsuit styles really didn't begin to evolve from that old pants and and long dress kind of thing until the 1930s. And that's when it became acceptable for women to wear a more form-fitting one-piece suit. Um, Women who swam competitively or in exhibitions really started the change because it was literally unsafe and nearly impossible to swim in the old-fashioned swimming suits. Right, absolutely. They looked like you're going to drown. They they were heavy. Yeah, and pretty much you just went into the water, got wet, and came back because otherwise you might drown because they weighed a ton. Um, And, of course, flappers kind of picked up on the more form-fitting styles in the 1920s and popularized them. Well, one of the biggest things to change swimwear was the development of new fabrics. So think of everything DuPont was doing in the war years. So synthetic fabrics like um, rayon and and nylon, um, rubber, latex, and spandex all came into being. And the options for swimsuit styles that were more functional and comfortable increased as the number of fabrics increased. So the fabric became lighter and more durable. Right, right. So World War II actually helped to reduce the amount of fabric in swimwear simply because it was not available. Um, Fabric, elastic, rubber, and all those materials were being used to make goods needed in the war effort. So you didn't have a lot of heavy materials that you could use to make swimming suits. So good for women, thanks to the war, they could wear smaller (laughs) swimsuits. So skirts went up and swimsuits got smaller. (laughs) Exactly. So some of the swimming suits in the 40s and 50s were very similar to the one-piece suits we wear today. For example, Janssen, that's a name that's familiar to most women in swimwear. They were a popular manufacturer, and you can still buy their suits today. Their styles were remarkably similar to a lot of the suits you can buy, especially if you're just buying a swimsuit to swim in. Mm-hmm. Um, mainstream fashion did affect the styles in the 40s and 50s, um, especially after the war years. Women wanted to look more feminine, and the ideal shape was the hourglass. So their clothing, right, which is not always easily achieved. Exactly, the body does not necessarily look like it's that. Not typically <laughs> shaped like an hourglass. That's right. So you know, when they wore dresses and things, they could wear undergarments to help give them that shape. Well, maybe you don't ha- you can't wear undergarments under a swimming suit, especially a form-fitting swimming suit. So the the um, the boning and the padding and things like that were built into the suit. So, you mm-hmm. know, to have a conical bra, it you know, it was built into the suit. No surprise, 
The bikini was invented by a male French lingerie designer named Louis Riard. Who was Riard, and why was he so concerned about economizing fabric? Which, of course, had to be the primary motivator、oh. for for creating the bikini. Of course, yeah. Well, Riard didn't start out life as a designer. He was actually an automobile engineer, but apparently that wasn't going so well because by the 1930s he was designing bathing suits for wealthy women. As you kind of hinted, Riard was not really concerned about economizing and using a little amount of fabric. Yeah, he wasn't motivated by the war effort.、Huh? <laughs> no, not really.、Uh, he want really. Wanted to create a sensation, and his design wasn't the first to use a shockingly small amount of fabric.、Um, actually, just a few days before he debuted his swimsuit, another French clothing designer, Jacques Heim, debuted a suit he called the Atome. And the difference was that Heim's suit had a rectangular piece of cloth. For the bottom, and Rayards had almost nothing.、Oh. Um, both men were doing what designers do; they were trying to put their name on the map. So, be shocking—you get your name in the paper. Sure. And they wanted to make people talk. Interestingly, the summertime bikini is actually a product of the Cold War. That's right.、Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how the be the bikini got its name? And it's actually kind of related to the idea of the、uh, earlier. Bikini, you're talking about the Atom. Yes. Well, the bikini, both of them debuted in July of 1946, so right after World War II. And just before they debuted, the U.S. tested an atomic bomb. It was the first atomic bomb detonated since the end of World War II on an island chain in the South Pacific known as Bikini Atoll. Which is a name that a lot of people recognize,、mm-hmm. and it was not named after the swimsuit. The swimsuit、no. was named after it. The island existed before the swimwear. Exactly. So the U.S. was motivated by more than just scientific research.、Uh, the government wanted to show the Soviet Union, which was on the rise, trying to you know show its power.、Uh-huh. Um, our government wanted to show the Soviets what it was capable of to try to keep them in their place. So they detonated this bomb, and people around the world were convinced that this was going to change. The world, not just in the political power sense or warfare, but literally changed the environment of the world. They were convinced it was going to be kind of like we talk about global warming now. It was going to make everything different. So the dropping of the bomb made people talk, and rumors began to spread. And the swimsuit got its name because Louis Riard wanted his design to create the same level of buzz. Plus, Bikini Island was on everybody's mind at the time. So, if they're already talking about bikini, you know, you mentioned Bikini Island where the bomb was dropped, and then, oh, did you hear about the bikini swimsuit? That's、mm-hmm. you know, basically nothing. You know, right? And it's also,、uh, I mean, it wasn't uncommon for people to use sort of war terms、mm-hmm. uh, in everyday language. I mean, women were often referred to as bombshells. That's where that came from. Bombshell. Yeah, exactly. So, from it goes from blonde bombshell to the bikini, the bikini. named after Bikini Island. Yep. So this swimsuit was worn by Greta Anderson. Do you know? Do you know much about Greta and where she wore this suit? Well, we know a little about Greta. She wore the suit in the 1960s, and at that time she was living here in Topeka,、uh, so not exactly close to the sunny beaches of California or Florida, where bikinis were definitely popular.、Uh, she was a young, stylish, fashion-conscious woman,、mm-hmm. um, and if you consider that the bikini was really taking off in the 60s with the younger surfer set in California, Greta was really on top of things. You know, they say Kansans are not up on fashion, but she knew what was、right. going on. So. <laughs> She was sporting this at like the local swimming pool.、Mm-hmm. As we've discussed, the definition of a bikini can be a little fuzzy.、Uh, I'm going to name a series of famous swimsuits, and I want you to tell me if this actually qualifies as a bikini or not. Okay. All right. All right. It's hard to tell. We'll start out with Ursula Andress from James Bond 1962 film Doctor No. 
kind of the quintessential bikini exactly. or swimwear. Yes. Bikini or not. It's absolutely a bikini. In fact, that suit is probably... It doesn't have strings on it. That's okay. It doesn't cover navel. It's oh. two pieces. It doesn't cover navel. And that suit is probably one, the, probably the most famous bikini ever. Okay. Um, what are known as trompe l'oeil bikinis... Uh, most prominently featured in the 1999 Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Right. I think... Can you explain a little <laughs> bit what trompe l'oeil bikinis are? Well, trompe l'oeil is basically, you know, trick the eye. Uh-huh. So the bikini is not all actually a, an object or a thing. It's painted on the body. Right. More commonly known as kind of painted body, body bikinis. Art. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say that since one of the requirements for a bikini is actually fabric, uh-huh. not body paint, I'm going to say no. Um, that's pretty much just nudity. This is not cool. It's just nudity. Right. And bikinis, you're supposed to wear them while you're swimming or surfing or on the beach. And if you did that in a paint bikini and you went in the water, you'd just be naked. Right. It's that's, true. Yeah, true. not a okay. bikini. All right. You said one of the requirements was fabric. Uh-huh. Now we're going to talk about Carrie Fisher or Princess Leia's metal bikini from the 1983 film Return of the Jedi. It looked. It appeared to be made out of metal. I know, but was it really metal or was it metallic-looking fabric? I don't know. You'd have to figure out what Jabba the Hutt was partial to. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with bikini, just because her navel is showing. There's minimal fabric uh-huh. or material used, and in the pictures, it looks like it ties at the neck and hips. So I'm going to say it is a bikini. So that is a bikini. Although, if she did wear it in the water and it was metal, it might just rust. Well, I don't think it was worn on the water because it was worn on the desert planet. Of, True. On a desert and planet. And wasn't she kind of, of chained to Jabba the Hutt? So there probably wasn't a lot of swimming going no. on. Yeah. I don't know. Finally, a green bikini worn by <laughs> Borat Sigayev in the, mm-hmm. in the 2006 film Borat. And actually, it's kind of a subsection of the bikini that's known as the mankini. Right. Well, this style of swimsuit was actually developed for women in the late 60s, and it was called the monokini. So okay. if you can, I mean, that was... It's not was, a two-piece. It was super revealing, though. It's, it's one-piece, monokini. So I'm going to say not a bikini. It's not a bikini. It's just a really, really revealing swimming suit. It's skirt. a really revealing one, onesie? <laughs> onesie, yeah. <laughs> Completely inappropriate for pool wear also. Particularly on a man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nikita. Well, thanks for telling us about Greta Anderson's bikini. You bet. There's a for decades, Kansans have sought out ways to beat the state's oppressive summer heat. While some head for the cooler mountain climate of Colorado, many escape to their local community swimming pool to cool off. Today's Kansas Quiz question focuses on one such pool where you might wear your bikini for an afternoon dip. The world's largest free outdoor municipal concrete swimming pool is located in Kansas. Can you name the town that's home to this oasis on the prairie? Before 3D, IMAX theaters, and even motion pictures, people were enthralled with lantern slideshows. And no one did it better than Civil War vet and Topeka resident Samuel Reeder. Today, we talk to Ashley Sherritt, a museum intern from the University of Kansas, 
to discuss a bizarre and amazing collection of paintings on glass from the territorial days of Kansas. One of the projects you completed while interning at the Kansas Museum of History was to catalog a collection of lantern slides created by a man named Samuel Reeder. Um, though not really famous, Reader is actually often quoted and his images are frequently reproduced. Who was Samuel Reader and why are people interested in what this guy had to say? Well, Samuel Reader moved to Kansas with his aunt and cousins in 1855 at the age of 19, and they established a farm in Indianola, which is just north of Topeka. Okay. And so he was really here even before Kansas was a state. And he uh, was an abolitionist and fought in the 2nd Kansas, Kansas Regiment in the Civil War. And he also kept a diary for 64 years, starting at I'm the sorry, what was that? For 64 years, almost every day at the age of 13. So he gives an excellent image of what it was like to be an early farmer in Kansas. Mm -hmm. His diaries are also, it, they make up 15 volumes because it's, because it's such a huge amount of time. And he wrote nearly every day. And he also included a lot of pictures because one of the things he loved to do was to draw. So he's got pictures of daily life. Right. He was a doodler, so he kind of life. illustrated in the diary, right? Exactly. You cataloged his lantern slides, which were used in conjunction with a magic lantern, which kind of sounds like a 60s phenomenon, <laughs> but uh, I guess maybe 1860s. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what are lantern slides and how did Reader use them? So lantern slides and magic lanterns are kind of like an early slide projector uh -huh. pre-electricity. So you would use a candle or um, a kerosene lamp or something right. and project your image up onto the wall. So you have a small picture that... Um, the frame is a rectangle of wood and a circle cut out for a glass for glass that uh, reader in this case had painted a picture on and then he puts it in front of this magic lantern and it projects on, onto the wall so he since he liked to draw so much he would paint a lot of these pictures on lantern slides and would invite people over to his house and have a big community gathering where he would show his lantern slides. He also would sometimes use um, his shows to make money for putting in a bridge around Topeka. Oh, so like for or, a charitable cause. Yeah, exactly. Um, besides what's painted on them, and we'll get to that, Like they're very interesting the way they're constructed because they look like piece of junk, kind of. I mean, they look like a shingle or something from a house. Well, the glass, some of them have even cranks on them. Some of them you're supposed to move the glass around a little bit. Like, what, what's the point of the cranks and the moving glass? Well, he the reason why they kind of look like shingles is he was building these lantern slides while he was building his house. Uh -huh. So he likely took pieces of his house wood and use these to create his lantern slides because his family didn't have a whole lot of money, so he had to just go with whatever he had. And the cranks and the slides are uh, so that you can make the lantern slide movable. Right. 
So there's one picture of a devil where you can move the slide to make his eyes right. either black or red. He gets red. googly eyes, yeah. Yes, exactly. So he's found a way to kind of animate the features he's yeah. projecting. The slides depict a wide variety of subjects from the Civil War, which he fought in, uh, to what look like microscopic images of bugs. Like they look like bugs mashed under a slide. Uh, you read through Reader's massive diary of 15 volumes. Uh, how many how many slides are there, and were you able to kind of use the diary to identify a lot of the subjects? Well, the museum has 45 of his lantern slides, and we know that he created a lot more than that. Oh, there's that. more out there. There's, he gave some away to people. Some of them, I'm sure, got damaged in the process. But the museum has 45 of them. And there are a lot that you can pick out from his diary. He'll write about, um, I made this slide today, or um, he actually wrote for one of them the ship slide, and it's a movable slide, so you can move the ship around and make it look like it's teetering on a on a um, stormy sea. Uh-huh. And he wrote that he made this slide because he accidentally cracked the glass in half and he could make the mast fit with where the glass had cracked. So a lot of the slides, you can t- match them up with the days that he made them. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what are some of your personal favorite slides? Well, one of them has to be the chicken cholera slide. And chicken cholera is actually a disease that can infect an entire flock of chickens. Okay. And so I just had the chicken slide is a chicken sitting in a chair draped in a blanket with its feet in uh, steaming hot water. Like the chicken has the flu. Exactly. So it looks absolutely hilarious, but I can just imagine Samuel Reader, he read a lot of newspapers and magazines, and so I imagine him reading about this thing called chicken cholera and imagining what it must look like when your chicken has cholera. Impressive. I wonder if that chicken had chicken noodle soup when it was sick. I really Uh, hope not. (laughs) I'm Michaela Zimmerman, and the answer to today's Kansas quiz question is Garden City. Hand dug in 1922, the big pool, originally known as the Big Dipper, is bigger than a 100-yard football field and holds 2.2 million gallons of water and at least 2,000 swimmers. It's so big you can water ski in it. The cost of recent improvements required the city to charge a $1 admission fee. It's still one of Kansas's cheapest and fastest ways to beat the heat. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Museum Director Bob Kekeisen. Hi. Today, we connect William Allen White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Tom and Jerry, a cartoon duo from the 1940s and 50s. Bob, you want to give us a little background on this classic pair of cat and mouse? Well, sure. 
Well, Tom and Jerry was an animated cartoon series, and it profiles the rivalry between an often evil cat named Tom and a cute yet highly violent mouse <laughs> named Jerry. Now, this was created in the 1940s. Uh, they were the creation of the noted animation team of William Hanna and Joseph Barbera. A lot of us grew up watching Hanna-Barbera Right, that's a, that's a recognizable name, Hanna-Barbera. You don't realize yeah. that they're actual yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> but this was one of their first big ones. I mean, a lot of people know them for the Flintstones and some of those uh, yeah. cartoons. But um, Tom and Jerry was kind of their first big one. They went on to create a lot of other animated series and really were kind of up there with some of the big giant animation firms like Disney and particularly Warner Brothers as mm-hmm. well. Because mm-hmm. about the same time Warner Brothers was doing... Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny and Porky Pig and Hanna-Barbera was putting out Tom and Jerry. Well, Tom and Jerry were perhaps best known for devising some of the most gory gags <laughs> in animation history. Um, this included uh, Jerry slicing Tom in half, mm-hmm. Tom's frequent use of axes, firearms, uh, <laughs> explosives, uh, poison, all while attempting to murder Jerry. Sounds Jerry fun. striking Tom with waffle irons, uh, mangles, refrigerators, dropping pianos on people's heads, sticking his tail into electric sockets, you know, uh, you name it. Good um, times. <laughs> and I was like, yay, it's, it's great things to teach your children. I grew up with it, and I'm fine. I know, none of us have murdered anyone or sliced anyone in half. I think it's like it's weird the 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 gags that are kind of used in the different genres, you know, like um Wiley e. Coyote and uh the Roadrunner. There's a lot of violence there, but it was, you know, it was like typically like bombs exploding. Yeah. Or anvils. Like where are right. you getting anvils an anvil? Yeah. Also violent. <laughs> or running into a wall or something. But you know, slicing someone's tail right. off that could actually happen. I remember, I remember that Tom and Jerry, that gag. I remember that specifically when Tom would get cut in half. And it would yeah. look like a side of, like, roast. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's like, right. Like, that spine. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was just, mm, yeah. And, and, you know, that's the, the funny thing about this, too, is although they had all this gore going on, they were, you know, never really seriously injured. They always mm-hmm. bounced back. And they they had that sort of, you know, love-hate relationship that kept, that kept going, kind of like you mentioned with uh, Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Bob. Uh, now to the game. As a contestant, Bob, you will hear two chains of connection between William Allen White and Tom and Jerry. Okay. You must pick the true six degrees of William Allen White from the false. Okay. And um, I think I'm going to go first. Okay. Ooh, switching okay. I know, I know. Okay, well, in 1945, Jerry the Mouse appeared in the movie Anchors Away, dancing alongside Gene Kelly, the dance phenom who starred in various musicals in the 1940s and 50s. Gene Kelly's wife was Betsy Blair, an American actress. Blair trained as a dancer from an early age. At age eight, she enrolled in the Swift Sister School of Dance and performed before Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt had a friendly relationship with William Allen White. She referred to him as our old friend William Allen White of Kansas in her June 13, 1943, My Day column. Though White didn't agree with all of FDR's politics, because White was kind of a Republican and FDR quintessential Democrat, the two shared a good rapport. In a letter to FDR written in 1939, White wrote, Convey to Mrs. Roosevelt my warm admiration and three cheers. If you will agree to let her serve your third term, I shall be for you against all comers. So there you go. William Allen White to Tom and Jerry by way of Gene Kelly and Eleanor Roosevelt. Pretty convincing, but I'll I'll wait to hear A lot of famous names there. All right, Nikayla, your turn. 
Okay, well, Tom and Jerry were the creation of William Hanna and Joseph Barbera, who first met working for Rudolf Ising, or Ising at MGM Studio. Famous for anti-war cartoons, Ising began his animation career in Kansas City, of all places, in the 1920s, working for none other than Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. Prior to starting an ad agency that evolved into the Disney empire, Walt illustrated and provided copy for the Kansas City Star, the same newspaper that periodically hired a young editorialist named William Allen White. Ooh, tough. Ooh, wow. That is tough. <laughs> Those are both really good. I'm going to go with Michaela's. It's a little more esoteric. <laughs> a little, little. That, yeah. that would be incorrect, Bob. Oh, oh Actually, the darn. Eleanor Roosevelt is the correct option. <laughs> and uh, the, the uh, Walt Disney, because uh, I wrote that one, but Walt Disney did not work for uh, the Kansas City Star. Sounded good, though. Dum, dum, dum. Uh, good try, Bob. Good try. Nate, better luck next time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nikayla, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? You bet. For our next episode, we attempt to connect William Allen White to the Hindenburg. In the 1930s, this German-built blimp filled with helium outsized any known aircraft and amazed the world. That is until it fell to the ground in a fiery inferno. <laughs> so come back in two weeks when we connect William Allen White to the Hindenburg. Did White have a tendency to ignore no smoking signs while in flight? <laughs> oh, the humanity. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. That concludes episode 139, Itsy Bitsy, Teeny Weeny. If you would like to see images of Greta Anderson's plaid bikini, check out kansasmemory.org, our online digital repository, or go to our website, kshs.org. While you're there, be sure to fill out a podcast survey or leave a comment on iTunes. Come back in two weeks when curator Blair Tarr discusses a military jacket worn by Colonel Jim Oakes. In 1946, Oakes graduated from West Point with the likes of George McClellan, Stonewall Jackson, and George Pickett. Thirty years later, those three were infamous generals of the Civil War, and Oakes was the commander of a tiny fort on the Kansas frontier. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Hey.